the, the universalizing power of Fanon's writing. It's why so many people from so many backgrounds have been drawn to it. Now, many people, of course, have tried to claim it for themselves, you know, and there are little wars, little academic wars between black scholars of Fanon who stress aspects of um, black and white masks and Arab and Salvation scholars who more often focus on the wretched of the earth. You know, a little turf wars about Fanon, but you know, I don't think that anyone can fully claim Fanon. He really belongs to a great, to all the people who are moved by his work. Hello, Happy New Year, and welcome back to Red Medicine, a podcast about the politics of health, medicine, and the body. In today's episode, first of the year, we're going to be speaking to Adam Schatz, who has written a wonderful new biography of the revolutionary psychiatrist and philosopher Franz Fanon. Adam Schatz is the US editor of the London Review of Books and a contributor to a number of publications, including the New York Times, the New York Review of Books, and the New Yorker. He also hosts a podcast called Myself with Others and is the author of two books. His first is titled Writers and Missionaries, Essays on the Radical Imagination, and that was published with Verso Books uh, a couple of years ago. And he now has a new biography of Franz Fanon, publishing this month, which is called The Rebels Clinic, The Revolutionary Lives of Franz Fanon. Now, people that have been listening to this podcast for a while, and I imagine most people listening will be aware of who Franz Fanon is. He is a hugely significant figure in a number of fields, not least of all psychiatry and a sort of broader spectrum of thinking around the psychic and how the psychic can't really be thought about without questions of power, about race, colonialism, etc., etc. So for those that aren't familiar with Franz Fanon, he was born in Martinique in 1925 and did a number of incredibly impressive and important things with his life despite being so short. Fanon died at the age of 36 and in that time he was a soldier, he worked as a psychiatrist and was hugely involved in the liberation struggle in Algeria. He wrote a number of incredibly important works such as Black Skin White Masks, A Dying Colonialism and The Wretched of the Earth, as well as many, many more essays, papers, he even wrote some plays that can be read and have been recently over the last few years, in fact, translated into English for the first time in a collection called Alienation and Freedom. So in this discussion with Adam, we talk about a few different aspects of Fanon's life and work. We start by talking about Adam's engagement with Fanon and how that started and why he decided to write that, you know, write a biography of Fanon. Um, and then we also talk about a few important aspects of the formation of Fanon's work, not least of all his time at St. Alban, which was a psychiatric institute famous for putting forward a more radical idea of the role of psychiatric institutions. We also discuss towards the end of the conversation how developments in Palestine 
are sort of reframing not only this book but broader conversations around Fanon's work and people's engagement with his work. So I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Before we get to that, um, as I have been doing with every episode since October, I'd like to reiterate my solidarity with the Palestinian people and join with millions of others calling for an immediate ceasefire and liberation of the Palestinian people. Finally, before we get into the conversation, I'd also just like to say that if you are interested in supporting Red Medicine, there's a number of things you could do. So you could give the show five stars on Apple or Spotify, which will help the show get recommended to more people. You could also just recommend the podcast yourself by sharing it with people you think might like it or posting about it on social media. And you could also sign up for a monthly donation, which ranges from £1 to £3 to £10. And if you sign up for the £3 or £10 donation, you will receive a free book to say thank you for your support. One of the books you could choose if you sign up for a donation is titled Asfria, A History of Madness, Modernity and War in the Middle East by Joel M. Abi Rashed. The book tracks the development of psychiatry in the Middle East, viewed through the history of one of the first modern mental hospitals in the region. It's a incredibly thoroughly researched and well-written book, and I think if you're interested in anything to do with Fanon and the relationship between the psychic and the colonial, you'll get a lot from it. So please do consider signing up, because you'll help make Red Medicine sustainable, make it easier for me to do more episodes, events, and all kinds of other things. So please do consider doing that. And if you've already done it, thank you very much. You are incredibly generous and I appreciate it greatly. So with all that being said, we'll now move on to the conversation with Adam. I thought I would kind of start off by just asking you about your decision to write an entire book about Fernando because obviously you've written essays about numerous writers and artists and intellectuals and your previous book was kind of essays about, you know, a constellation of thinkers. And I, I, I wondered what it was about Fanon that made you want to dedicate an entire book and the, you know, the time required to write an entire book to, to him as a figure, as opposed to sort of any number of other thinkers that you've engaged with. Um, it's a good question. I was, um, I had been fascinated by Fanon since I was a teenager. I first learned of Fanon while rummaging through my father's library in our basement. And I think that Black Skin, White Masks in an original uh, Grove Press edition was sandwiched in between uh, Isaac Deutscher's Non-Jewish Jew and the autobiography of Malcolm X, which was also a Grove book. And I was struck by, you know, Fanon's image um, on the jacket of that book and also by the, the jacket description of this West Indian psychiatrist who had join the Algerian national liberation struggle. I mean, you wouldn't necessarily even connect Martinique to Algeria. So that story fascinated me even before I got around to reading Fanon. I began reading Fanon when I was in college at Columbia in the early 1990s. And I think it was in a class on 20th century French thought. And, you know, again, I, you know, I was, you know, intrigued by this thinker who had, you know, some parallels with Black American writers such as uh, James Baldwin or uh, Richard Wright, whom he actually cited extensively um, in his work, or for that matter, Chester Himes, another novelist uh, Fanon admired. But he was also very distinctive. I mean, he had this 
very strong um, attachment to a certain French intellectual tradition, both phenomenology and existentialism. He was in conversation with Sartre. Sartre wrote the preface to The Wretched of the Earth. So he was you know, drawing upon the French existential tradition, his interest in Black American fiction, and also, of course, this very rich tradition of West Indian radicalism, negritude, and so forth, and produce something, uh, a, you produce what you might call a, a kind of syncretic language out of these different elements that was wholly his own, you know, just has a very distinctive tonality and force. And so, you know, so Fanon starts out as this object of fascination for me. And then, you know, as I read Fanon, I see the ways in which his analyses of the dynamics of the colonizer and colonized, uh, if you will, or, or native and settler resonated in our own time, particularly in connection with the struggle in Israel-Palestine, because I was very affected in my teenage years uh, by the outbreak of the first intifada. Of course, the second intifada in the early aughts um, also had many uh, what you might call Fanonian elements. So um, he was this figure who had interested me, and uh, I finally got around to writing about him for the LRB in uh, early 2017. And that was a piece that grew out of a book that had been published originally in French, edited by Jean Calfa and Robert Young, called Writings on Freedom and, and uh, Disal Disalienation. And those essays opened a window onto um, you know, a very important dimension of, of Fanon's work, namely his psychiatric practice. And it was like reading Fanon again, but also reading another Fanon. And um, I was riveted by those writings. And after publishing that, that article, uh, I felt that there was more to say. And uh, this you know, impression was reinforced after a conversation with Pankaj Mishra, who encouraged me uh, to write a book. I actually reviewed David Macy's biography in, I think, 2001 for the New York Times. I had this, I'd already written a little bit about Fanon many years ago, over 20 years ago. So I felt that like I had a kind of um, account to settle with this person, this writer, who I should also add, I felt hadn't been entirely well served by his biographers. I, you know, I have great esteem for David Macy's book. It's extremely thorough. It's a work of very serious scholarship. Macy was, um, you know, very distinguished uh, and, and, um, energetic scholar. I mean, if you're looking for an exhaustive biography of Fanon, you're going to read Macy, you're not going to read me. But I felt with Macy's book, and also with some of the other biographies, including uh, the biography of Alice Cherki, who was his intern in Algeria, that none of the books really kind of connected the thought and the practice um, as viscerally as I wish to do, and that none of them really captured the, the passion, in fact, the tragic passion of uh, Fanon's life. I felt that they all seemed to me strangely disembodied. And, you know, Fanon in Black Skin, White Masks writes that his greatest desire is to be seen as nothing but a man. And yet, even in these books, which purported to present a complex account of Fanon's life, he's like a stick figure. You know, he never really emerges in his full human complexity. And so I thought, well, I think I can do that and I'd like to try, even if it turns out to be a ton of work, which of course it was far more than I anticipated. And I'm glad I didn't know that before because I might've hesitated to do it. Yeah, I'm sure. I mean, in addition to the sort of daunting nature of this sort of volume of work, 
is there something kind of particularly daunting about a figure like Fanon when it comes to biography? I'm thinking particularly of um, the words you quote from Josie Fanon about her comments about, you know, the important work about Fanon being done by intellectuals, not from the West and from what we would call maybe the third world. It's, uh, I think it's an interesting comment and, and I don't dismiss it. And, um, and I would be the last person to deny that while I bring certain things to this book that perhaps others don't, there are going to be gaps that perhaps might be filled by an Algerian writer or a Black American writer. I can't, I, you know, I, I, I think that it's, it's quite possible and it's kind of not for me to say. I think that for me, you know, Fanon is, um, you know, Fanon is a figure who speaks to a great range of people. Um, also, you know, we also have to, to remember that Fanon is someone who challenges fixed notions of identity as well, because there's something almost chameleonish about Fanon himself. I mean, he was someone who was desperately in search of belonging. And um, there are many Fanons. There's the West Indian Fanon, there's the French Fanon, there's the Algerian Fanon, there's the African Fanon. I, but it's something that, you know, that um, is it is it a question of which I am conscious? Certainly, certainly. I don't think you, I think you have to be conscious of it no matter who you are. And certainly if you're, you know, if you're a writer um, like myself, who's not a, you know, who is not in the, you know, in the language that we use today, not a person of color, but at a certain point, you also have to release yourself from that and just write. And my world is also composed of a great range of people of many backgrounds. So, you know, these relationships also fertilize whatever I write. Yeah, one one aspect of um, the the process of writing this book that you mentioned in the I think it's the um, the, the note on sources is the um, educational program you took part of at uh, Eastern Correctional Facility in Ulster County, New York. I wondered if you could talk about that process, how it came about, what it looked like, and and kind of what insights you were able to generate about the work from that. Because I think it leads on into a lot of other interesting aspects of Fanon's work that I want to ask you about. Sure. No, no. Um, yes. In uh, 2018, 2019, I taught at a maximum security prison as part of the Bard Prison Initiative, which is a, a really extraordinary project created by um, a, a guy named Max Kenner. And um, Max is the son of a man I actually knew in graduate school who had been a lawyer for the Black Panthers. So this, uh, this strain of social conscience, radicalism uh, runs in the family, you might say. And I decided to teach a kind of survey course on Fanon's writings to a group of men, uh, many of whom had been serving in that prison for, for decades. And in one case, it was someone who had been there since he was, I think, 16 years old. And racially quite mixed, probably majority Black and Latino, but a number of prisoners were Asian American, and also there were a number of white prisoners. And well, first of all, I should just say that the students were very impressive for their degree of commitment, for their seriousness. They read with dedication, poured over everything that we read with great care, and I, I was um, very grateful to teach them and quite moved by their response to the work. Their responses were various too. I mean, I you know some. Some students emphasized the aspects of Black consciousness in his work, which you do find at points in Black Skin, White Masks, although, you know, Fanon, we can discuss this, 
eventually move beyond the politics of black consciousness. It's a journey that he describes in the central chapter of that book, The Lived Experience of the Black Man. Others connected to Sanan's uh, writing on humiliation and the experience of being subjected to an oppressive gaze. Others were drawn to the question of violence. And I remember, you know, in particular, a conversation that I had with one of the men who was Irish American, I believe. And he described being taken out of prison for the, the only time in his entire history of being incarcerated. I think he'd been incarcerated for probably 30 years. And um, it was the one time that he was allowed to leave the prison. And it was for, um, he had some sort of operation, I think. And he was in the hospital. And somehow, maybe because there were uh, prison employees around him, or because he might have been in handcuffs, I, I can't remember why, but it was known that he was a prisoner. And he hadn't been exposed to the gaze of non-prisoners or people not working in a prison. And he described just, you know, the intensity of that gaze and how he went from feeling like a human being to feeling, in a sense, um, almost amputated by this gaze. Now, of course, Fanon was not writing about the carceral gaze in Black Skin, White Masks or in Wretched of the Earth or in anything he wrote. But I do think there's a power to his descriptions of the gaze and to what it feels like to be under that gaze that can move a great range of people. And I think it explains the, the universalizing power of Fanon's writing. It's why so many people from so many backgrounds have been drawn to it. Now, many people, of course, have tried to claim it for themselves. You know, and there are little wars, little academic wars between, uh, 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 between black scholars of Fanon who stress aspects of, uh, uh, you know, of um, black skin, white masks and Arab and Salvation scholars who more often focus on the wretched of the earth, you know, little turf wars about Fanon. But, you know, I don't think that anyone can fully claim Fanon. He really belongs to, a to all the people who are moved by his work. Mm. Yeah, I mean, when I got to the end of the book and I was reading that section just kind of briefly at the end and, and, and noticed that part of why I wanted to ask you about it is because to me, that's a really interesting link to the formation of his work. I mean, we'll come back to the Panthers, which is also another interesting kind of connection we could pick up on. But to me, that speaks very clearly to Fanon's time at St. Alban via the experience of uh, Francois Tosquez, who developed his understanding of psychiatry, uh, psychiatry by, quote-unquote, doing it in the mud, by doing it in a refugee camp or a concentration camp after fighting in the Spanish Civil War. Um, I mean, Tosquez didn't fight in the Spanish Civil War. Tosquez organized the psychiatric services of the Spanish Republic, you know, he was, um, or, or rather, of, of the Pum. I mean, uh, Tosquillas was a, uh, he was Catalan, and he was kind of equally drawn to Marxism, anarchism, and Catalan nationalism. He was a total iconoclast. He was the kind of person who can never really fully belong to a political party. But during the Spanish Civil War, he was close to the Pum, which was the, you know, the kind of Trotskyist anarchist faction that was eventually crushed. Uh, by, the, by the communists um, in Spain. And he organized their psychiatric services until he received a death sentence or death threats rather from, uh, from, from the Franco uh, forces. And he was um, 
uh, he was expelled. I think it was um, 1939. And of course, then he ends up in this in this refugee camp, Latrato, in France. And uh, Toscaeus was someone who couldn't not practice psychiatry. So he immediately began to practice it again um, in this camp. And then reports began to, or rumors began to circulate of this guy with a handlebar mustache who was practicing psychiatry in the camp. And uh, the director of the Saint Alban Clinic, Paul Balve, whose work, you know, Fanon would later read, um, went to meet him and uh, hired him to work with him at, uh, at San Alban in the Lozere. So yeah, Tosqueus was a, a, a really um, extraordinary man and quite an innovator. He really revolutionized the work at, um, at San Alban. San Alban already had, you know, San Alban, you know, I think it was in 39 or 40 that he came to San Alban. And the experience of San Alban during the war was quite heroic. Now, you know, during, uh, the Second World War, about 40 to 50,000 mentally ill people died of hunger and disease. And it was known as the, uh, uh, as the, the slow extermination, uh, l'extermination douce. And Saint-Alban was one of the only places where the patients survived. And it was thanks both to these you know, innovative methods of therapy that were developed there, but mostly to the fact that they organized kind of these clandestine resistance cells, and they were able to get food in, and uh, the the, uh, the asylum was fully defended uh, during the war. They even managed to provide sanctuary to uh, resistance uh, poets and fighters, people like um, Paul Edouard, um, and uh, the historian of science, uh, Georges Canguillem, who is best known for his study of the normal and the pathological. Um, Saint-Alban had a great mystique at the end of the war. And uh, Fanon heard about Saint-Alban when he was a student in Lyon. I mean, he had the misfortune of studying psychiatry with a guy named Jean de, Jean de Chaume, who was you know, quite conservative um, in his reflexes. And uh, you know, originally, Fanon submitted uh, the manuscript of Blacks and White Mask as his dissertation. It was, of course, immediately rejected. And then he wrote his dissertation on something else. But he knew of, of Saint-Alban. He was reading uh, the writings of Paul Balvé, the director in uh, the journal Esprit, to which Fanon became a contributor in the early 1950s. Balvé had written this very uh, probing and also quite beautiful essay called The Human Value of Madness. Uh, Balvé, like um, many psychiatrists, radical psychiatrists in France of that era, was very influenced by surrealism and by the fascination with the unconscious and with, you know, with non-rational experiences. He felt that, you know, it's not that he celebrated madness or thought that it was some mode of experience that should be cultivated in people. I mean, he left that to, um, you know, to, uh, to other thinkers, let's say. But he did think that it had a legitimacy and an authenticity and that it had to be understood. And you had to understand madness from within. And that was an insight that Fanon drew richly upon. So he's, you know, he's hearing about, about Saint-Alban. He meets Paul Balvé because his, um, he had a friend, Nicole, Nicole Guillet, I think her name was. And Nicole Guillet was also a student at the University of Lyon. And Nicole was staying at Paul Balvé's house in Lyon. And so he went for dinner there struck up a conversation with Balvé. They discussed topics of mutual interest. 
and uh, four or five years later, Fanon ends up at Saint-Elbon and meets Tosquelles, and they immediately forge this bond. Um, they work together, they write papers together. Yeah, I mean, how do you think that relationship informed Fanon's work then, but then in ways that maybe reappear sort of throughout his life? Because much is made of his kind of relationships with other figures, but that one sometimes gets overlooked. I mean, in my view, the Tosquelles relationship is crucial to understanding Fanon's practice of psychiatry for two reasons. The first is that Tosquelles was developing these new methods of group therapy. Um, they were, and they were kind of collectively known under the rubric social therapy or institutional therapy. And the principal idea behind group therapy for Tosquelles was the notion of what he called burst transference, transference éclaté. And the idea is that the process of, the psychoanalytic process of transference, which you know, creates this bond between the, the analyst and the analysand, also applies to every single person in an asylum. It's not just between doctor and patient. So everyone is involved in the care and recovery of a person. Everyone is involved and together they form what Tosquelles called a collective soignant, a, a, a caring or healing collective. So Fanon is very, very influenced by these ideas about the collective soignant. He's very influenced by the idea that you have to, in a sense, create a micro society within the asylum that resembles to some extent the life world of the patient outside the hospital. But these ideas are very important to Fanon. And the second way in which Tosquelles is crucial for Fanon is that Tosquelles was a resistant psychiatrist. For Tosquelles, politics and psychiatry were inseparable. Human liberation and the disalienation of the mentally ill went hand in hand. And so once Fanon ends up in Blida, in this city, outside in the outskirts of of, um, of Algiers, uh, where in late 1953, he becomes the director of the uh, Blida Joinville uh, Psychiatric Hospital. When he gets to Blida, Fanon immediately begins to apply the ideas of Tosquelles, you know, the ideas of the collective soignant, of, of burst of trans, of exploded transference, and so forth. In a sense, you could argue that Fanon becomes to the Algerian struggle which breaks out a year after his arrival, what Tosquelles had been to the Spanish Republic. There are differences, of course. I mean, Fanon becomes much more involved in the actual political struggle and, and it's the core of his work. Um, but there are very, very strong parallels. And I, and I do think that um, Tosquelles is a hugely important influence. By the end of his life, he begins to break somewhat with Tosquelles' ideas because Fanon begins to think that perhaps psychiatry has to be deinstitutionalized and that you know the institution is the problem you know that the only way of really healing someone really disalienating someone is to incorporate their care into the real world the concrete world and that's why he ends up setting up a day clinic in tunis so that people who are mentally ill can spend a day uh, in therapy and then go home to their families at night. So it's treated like almost like a job. So there are, he does begin to, 
depart from Tosquelles and to radicalize what he's learned from Tosquelles, but the Tosquelles connection is very, very strong. I wondered if you could unpack a term you used there a couple of times, disalienation, and and what that what that means, and maybe how it diverts from other common understandings of a term like alienation, like the Marxist understanding, how it's slightly different. You know, it's it's it's. I I, I think that it's. You know, the I when I by the way, when I use this term, I should um, I should emphasize that I'm not it's not it's not the way it's I'm not endorsing it. I, I think it's um, it's certainly it's a construct that one finds frequently and, you know, in mid-century. And I'm not sure that um, it's a term that is as useful today. Um, but of course, it rests on the notion that we are as subjects alienated from some vital part of ourselves. And this alienation prevents us from, from recognizing ourselves, from acting on the world, from uh, asserting our sense of power and sovereignty. And that this alienation produces, for the mentally ill at least, a kind of, um, you know, a kind of lethargy, a kind of uh, a sense of futility and despair. The reason that Fanon spoke of disalienation he was not the first, it was a term that was used by others before him, is that the mentally ill in France were known as aliené, aliené, the alienated. So to disalienate them was not necessarily to make them quote unquote normal again. I mean, he was working with a lot of people who were very much hard cases, but it was to reawaken their capacity for experience, for joy, for um, finding a sense of purpose in life. Um, and uh, Fanon, I think, also applied this idea of disalienation to larger political issues. I mean, it's, it definitely undergirds a lot of his writing on, on race and colonialism. Uh, the original title of Black Skin, White Masks, and this is before he even you know, gets to Saint-Alban, because you know, he published the book before he arrived there. The original title of that book was an essay on the disalienation of the Black man. Black Skin, White Masks was a much better title. <laughs> It's not his title. Black Skin, White Masks was actually a title that was proposed by his editor, Francis Janson, who, like Fanon, was a veteran of the resistance and a philosopher very close to, uh, to Jean-Paul Sartre. And later, much later, long after Fanon died, uh, an enthusiast for psychiatry. He ended up working in psychiatric asylums and wrote a book called In Praise of Psychiatry, a book which peculiarly never mentions Fanon. It's very weird. He had a, a he had a complicated relationship to Fanon, but he was the editor of Blacks and White Masks. And later the two of them, well, later their two lives would converge again around the Algerian War because Jean-Saint was the leader of the uh, Porteur de Valise, the, uh, the French network that supported the FLN. So Fanon then kind of goes and takes a lot of this and, and, and applies it in the Algerian context. And he's, and he's certainly not successful at first. And he kind of, um, I suppose, has to adapt his work to the specific Algerian context. What did that look like? And then how did, how did he kind of become so embedded in, in, in the Algerian struggle? How did that kind of, how did those things kind of lead together? Sure. Um, they're two different things, but they are also related. I mean, he, he, he discovers early on, or you could say he tests an intuition, intuition of his, of his of a, intuition that he already had, that if he was going to work successfully with his Muslim patients, um, I think there were about 200 men 
um, if he was going to work with them as successfully as he had been with the European women under his care, and there were, I think, about 160 of those, then he was going to have to apply a different set of methods. And he, he, he actually carried out a kind of test, basing his work on this model of social therapy. He set up a cinema and other forms of entertainment to encourage people who had been basically more or less abandoned by administrators at uh, the Blida Psychiatric Hospital. What he found, though, was that the European women responded very, very favorably to these um, innovations. And uh, they began to kind of come to life again. I mean, it was, a, it was a kind of disalienation in practice. But the Muslim men did not respond. Um, if anything, they, they made excuses to go off and do something else or to go to sleep. I mean, it was clearly not something that was going to work with them. He may have known this already, but what he did was to begin to introduce forms of sociality and entertainment that grew out of a specifically Algerian context, like the, the Moorish Cafe, the Cafe Mor, like um, Arab Andalusian music, or eventually you know, inviting the local mufti for the first time in the institution's history um, for a visit. Um, and he found that once he began to do these things, once he began to create kind of micro world that had some uh, resemblance to the world these men knew outside, then they too became engaged again in their lives. And, you know, what he, what he realized or what he was able to prove on the basis of these intuitions is that the methods of social therapy had to incorporate ideas of cultural relativism. You know, the, the, the model generally was, 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 had a universalizing thrust, but no one model was going to work. And that in effect to try to use the same methods with Algerian Muslim men from predominantly rural backgrounds was merely to reinforce European hegemony. And uh, so, you know, Fanon was, you know, in effect, you know, he thought as a, um, he thought about politics as a psychiatrist, but he also thought about psychiatry as a man with a sense of politics. You know, I mean, he was a critic of psychiatry. He had been a critic of psychiatry as early as the late 1940s, early 50s, when he was in Lyon, and when he worked with poor Algerian men working on the Rue Mans, living on the Rue Mansi, where, um, you know, they were sleeping, you know, six or seven to a room. These were men who had complained of, um, of an ailment that seemed to have no cause, no physical cause. And French doctors had dismissed this as the so-called North African syndrome and, and uh, attributed it to um, uh, their irrationality or, or to um, their tendency to kind of just tell stories or to their desire not to work. And uh, Fanon uh, drew, you know, reached the conclusion that in, that in fact these men suffered directly from their social situation, from their alienation, from French society, from being told a, a thousand times that they were French when in fact they weren't French and weren't treated as French, from, you know, racism and, uh, and segregation. Uh, so, you know, and this is long before Fanon ends up in Algeria, you know. So um, now as far as Fanon's relationship to the Algerian struggle, that's a different matter. It's true that in his first year at, uh, at Blida, he was becoming increasingly interested in the majority community, in the disenfranchised Algerian majority who had been rendered, in effect, 
strangers in their own homes, in their own land. And Fanon, you know, was someone who already had, broadly speaking, anti-colonial convictions. There are references in black skin white masks to the colonization of North Africa, to, you know, French, uh, uh, to French repression in Vietnam. I mean, he was someone who was, as we would say today, who was very woke about the problems of colonialism. Um, but he was not in any way, you know, involved directly in any kind of struggle. And he wouldn't have known that a struggle was being developed because the FLN was a new organization that had not announced itself. When, when the FLN launched its rebellion on November 1st, 1954, most Algerians had never heard of it. You know, these were young men who were, for the most part, disciples of the fourth, the founding father of Algerian nationalism, um, Masali Haj, uh, but who had broken with Masali Haj because of his cult of personality and because Masali Haj did not feel that the time was right to launch an insurrection. So these young men were passionate kind of hotheads in a way who just want, they wanted to launch the struggle. And, and you know, Fanon was someone who was attracted to that kind of passion and that desire for action. He was very much, he styled himself very much as a man of action. We should also remember that Fanon had been a soldier. You know, Fanon is someone who left Martinique in the early 1940s to join the Free French Forces, who had been wounded two or three times, gotten a croix de guerre. It was given to him by Raoul Salon, who went on to become one of the most hardline generals in French Algeria. Fanon was very, in a sense, very consistent, being very consistent with his own personality when he embraced the Algerian struggle. But the question is, how did he first make contact you know, with the FLN? This is not something that is easily done. The FLN is a clandestine organization. As soon as the rebellion breaks out, the French are brutally repressing it. They see the Algerian rebels as hors la loi, outlaws, as bandits, felaga, not as you know legitimate fighters for national liberation. So it's not as though you can you know, walk into a mosque or, you know, pick up a phone and try to make a call to the local representative of the FLN. You just can't do that. So Fanon's link is, is, is interesting. Fanon, you know, when he was in France, was writing for a journal called Esprit. It was a journal of the Catholic left. And Esprit, uh, you know, grew out of Catholic resistance movements in, the world, in World War II, which were grouped around a journal called Témoignage Chrétien. And one of the writers, associates of Esprit was a man named André Mandouz, who was a classical scholar, a scholar of ancient Greece, Roman Greece. And Mandouz was, was based in Algiers. He was teaching at the University of Algiers. And he'd gotten there in the mid-1940s after the war and immediately grasped what was at stake in Algeria. It became, was very sympathetic to the Algerian struggle. There were other people in those circles, like the doctor Pierre Cholet, who was a contemporary of Fanon's and who was one of the early members, early European members of the FLN. And Cholet's sister was involved with a man whom she later married, Salah Luanchi. Salah Luanchi was another clandestine member of the FLN. And so Fanon was invited to a dinner. He'd given some lectures in Algiers. He was invited to a dinner with Cholet and Salah Luanchi and other people in this, you know, in this anti-colonial circle. And it was through these people that he became aware of the independence struggle just after the outbreak of November 1st, 1954. And an Algerian man, rather wealthy Algerian businessman, um, I think his name was Mustafa Ben Cherchali, came to um, 
to uh, to Blida, pretended to undergo therapy there, and began to debrief Fanon on what was expected of him for the FLN. And so uh, before long, Fanon starts to uh, provide um, a sanctuary for injured FLN fighters, to provide psychiatric care, even as he is providing psychiatric care for French soldiers who have been deployed in Algeria to repress the rebellion. So Fanon becomes a kind of doctor of the revolution. And there are many people on staff who share his conviction. Some of them are communists. Others are close to the what was called the MTLD. That was um, the uh, Masali Haj party, which eventually you know, morphs into a rival rebel group, the MNA, long story. But many of the people in the MTLD eventually just joined the FLN. So there, you know, so there is a kind of critical mass of doctors who are with Fanon, you know, in their support of the Algerian struggle. And Fanon is able to continue operating inside Algeria until late 1956, when it becomes too dangerous for him to stay there. Mm. Yeah, and then you, you have this interesting echo of St. Alban, where obviously different political struggles, one of kind of resistance to European fascism and well, I mean, I guess you could talk about what happened in Algeria as a different kind of resistance to European fascism, but uh, a liberation struggle in a different way. How how did Fanon see the institution that he was head of as a tool that could be leveraged? And I mean, maybe I'll truncate this into another question I wanted to ask you, actually, which was Fanon had this sense that as a writer, as a thinker, he was he had a he had a political commitment. And that shaped his work in a way that I think is quite different from maybe other intellectuals of that period. I mean, some obviously share that kind of commitment, but others don't. How is his work shaped by this real passionate commitment to a struggle that he felt was the most important thing in, in, his, in his life world? Couldn't have been, I mean, it couldn't have been more shaped by it. I mean, Fanon... Um... I mean, the idea of the the engaged writer, the écrivain engagé, or the committed writer, was was quite widespread in France after the war. I mean, Fanon is in that regard very much an heir to the whole kind of Sartre and Tom Modern circle. You know, these were writers who you know believed that um, writing had to be linked to theory, had to be linked to practice, and that um, writers did not write alone; they wrote in some kind of connection or solidarity with larger um, social movements. Obviously, there are many different iterations of that. I mean, for, for Jean-Paul Sartre, for example, the idea of being a committed writer didn't mean that you took orders from a political organization. I mean, he was not interested in being a communist writer who basically took dictation from the Communist Party. You could look at um, the, the Sartrean model as, a, as an attempt to... Uh, to somehow juggle um, solidarity with a larger movement with the independence of a writer and with the writer's search for new forms, new forms of expression. Uh, Fanon, when Fanon was in Algeria, he was so deeply affected by the revolt of the Algerian people, you know, in circumstances of you know, really extreme uh, brutality that he began in a way to almost think of himself as an Algerian. And that process is consummated once he gets to Tunis. So he wanted to devote himself, you know, fully body and soul um, to what he called the Algerian revolution. And, you know, his first 
book written about the Algerian struggle was, was not Wretched of the Earth. It was uh, a book called Year Five of the Algerian Revolution, um, which was published in English as um, Studies in a Dying Colonialism, and later abridged to a Dying Colonialism. And it's a, it's a, it's a book that is as close to sociology as uh, Fanon ever came. It's essentially a book that studies various aspects of the Algerian independence struggle um, uh, as a kind of explanation, as a primer uh, for people outside. And what's striking about that book, uh, there, there are many things that are striking about that book, but one of the things that, that I wanna mention is that the vision that he puts forward of the Algerian struggle is one that is very close to a certain kind of current uh, within the FLN that one might describe as kind of left modernist. Um, and that I would associate with figures like Aban Ramdan, who was his, would become his political mentor and the uh, people in uh, the, 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 the commanders um, in the uh, Wilaya that, that he was in, I think it was Wilaya 4, I'm, I'm forgetting, it could have been Wilaya 2, but in any case, these were the people who were shaping his thought about what the Algerian revolution was. And of course, there is a struggle in the Algerian movement about what this movement is really about. Like, you know, yes, they know that they want to end French rule, but do they want to drive out all the French or can some of the French remain? What's the relationship to the Jewish community? What kind of a state do we want to build? What is our political ideology? Remember that the FLN was not really a party. It was a front. That's why it's called the Front de Libération Nationale. So it's an umbrella organization that includes a great variety of tendencies. There are Arab nationalists, there are Ba'athists, there are Islamists, there are religious conservatives, there are nationalist liberals you know it's a it's 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 an umbrella and so there is so, so even though the the front presents itself as unified to the world and even though anyone who tries to set up a rival organization risks being liquidated because the fln did not treat rivals as anything other than enemies there's still a struggle inside the organization about its direction and fanon was very much identified with this left modernist tendency so the subjects that he chooses to focus on you know, reflect the positions to a large degree of that wing. Now, what Fanon does with that is his own. I mean, the analyses have a great deal of originality. Some of them are rather dazzling. And, you know, that's one of the reasons why we still read them today, even though, you know, it's decades and decades since the Algerian struggle. He was able to put his personal imprimatur on them. But there's no question that uh, Fanon owed a great deal to the Algerian struggle. And I would say he owed more to Algeria than Algeria owed to him. And you see it returned, right? So his his work, despite its specificity in some ways to Algeria, is then taken up in so many different contexts. You know, you listen in the book, kind of everyone from the Panthers, the ANC, Cuban militants, Iranian Marxists, and kind of uh, Palestinian liberation fighters, what do you think, despite the specificity, those groups kind of turn to Fanon for over and over again? Because obviously that's a particular period. And Sorry, go on. It's a simple reason. I mean, you know, look, every kind, you know, Fanon's writing is is in some ways quite challenging and difficult and, you know, can be read in multiple ways, even though 
paradoxically, the work was originally conceived as propaganda. I mean, The Wretched of the Earth is a work of, it's a piece of propaganda, it's a manifesto. And yet it, you know, because Fanon was as brilliant as he was, it's intricate, it's dense, it's challenging, and it raises probably more questions than it answers in the end. But like any political philosophy that proves influential, Marxism is another example, it's going to spawn a vulgar version. And so just as we have vulgar Marxism, we have vulgar Fanonism. And to a large extent, it's vulgar Fanonism. And I don't, and by the way, when I, when I use that term, I don't use that term as a criticism. I'm talking about the Vulgate. You know, it's a kind of populist Fanonism. It's a Fanonism that can easily be operationalized and simplified for mass distribution. It's not a value judgment. So the idea, I think, that becomes very attractive to all manner of liberation movements in the 60s and 70s is, first of all, the idea that the colonized um, liberates himself or herself, of course, himself is how they would phrase it in those days, in and through violence, that violence is a necessary stage in any anti-colonial struggle, and that violence is, moreover, a kind of shock therapy that shatters the apathy, the lethargy, the feeling of um, utility and despair that characterize so many people who have been subject to colonial and racial domination. In a sense, it's, it's similar to the use of electroshock with the aliené at a place like Saint-Alban. So when the colonized decides finally to take up arms and to go into battle, that colonized is not only killing the colonizer, in a sense, he's, he's killing a part of himself, the weak part of himself that couldn't, that couldn't fight the system that oppressed him. That's an idea that, you know, and I'm not, in, I'm not endorsing it or dismissing it, but it's, a, it's an idea that I think resonated with a lot of people who had suffered from, you know, racial and colonial discrimination and violence. It certainly appealed to uh, the Palestinians. I mean, the Palestinians, uh, after the um, uh, Battle of Karameh, in which, you know, just in a village in Jordan where the, the PLO fought off um, the Israelis, um, uh, Yasser Arafat uh, made some remark, very Fanonian remark to the effect that after Karameh, the Palestinians went from being despairing refugees to, to fighters. It's a very Fanonian idea. Saleh Khalif, who went by the nom de guerre Abu Iyad, who was uh, Yasser Arafat's lieutenant and who eventually was assassinated in Tunis, writes in his memoir, uh, My People, My Land, that uh, you know, Fanon was one of his most important authors. Having said that, I think it's also worth noting that some of these early readers of Fanon went beyond the chapter on violence, or for that matter, the even more incendiary preface by Jean-Paul Sartre, who outdid Fanon in his celebration of violence. And one example is the, uh, the Black Panthers. You know, the Black Panthers were certainly drawn to Fanon's observations about armed struggle, but they were also interested in his writings about colonialism and medicine. The chapter of colonialism medicine in, um, in A Dying Colonialism had, I think, a significant influence on the Black Panther uh, healthcare programs, clinics. And it's not surprising when you consider that 
for many black Americans, going to a doctor was, as you know, Fanon describes it in the Algerian case, a potentially hostile encounter. You know, we had episodes, really grotesque episodes in this country of racist medical malpractice like the Tuskegee experiments. So when the Panthers read Fanon on colonials and medicine, they could immediately relate to what he was saying. So I think these were some of the ideas that really reverberated in these national liberation and Black Panther circles in the 60s and 1970s. There were later waves of Fanon appreciation in which different ideas of Fanon, I think, um, reverberate more. And you make a kind of specific intervention on his writing around violence, I feel, in the biography, almost on the level of kind of translation in the sense that you're kind of trying to recover perhaps more nuance or, or a more accurate reading or a more sort of sensitive reading to some of the aspects of his reading about violence. Look, I don't deny, I would never deny, it would be preposterous to deny that Fanon was an advocate of armed struggle. He was, you know. Um, and, and, you know, he's hardly alone in believing that some kind of violence is at times necessary in fighting against systems of oppression. I mean, there were, let's remember, resistance armies throughout Europe during the Second World War. And I do think that part of the horror and shock of certain Western readers when they confront Fanon's writing on violence has to do with a fear and an anxiety about a Black man advocating violence that would be directed against a white population. I do think that's a part of it. Obviously, there's another aspect to it, which is that Fanon is talking, in some cases, about violence against civilians. And, you know, he's very clear that, you know, the colonial conflicts are often, very often, almost always, in the case of settler colonialism, communal conflicts. Um, civilians are the targets of both the settler army and of the anti-colonial army. It's, um, it's something that he writes about, I think, often with a sense of tragedy. I don't think that he is someone who writes about violence lightly. There's even a passage in A Dying Colonialism where he says that we condemn the uh, violence, the atrocities carried out with an almost physiological brutality resulting from centuries of, of um, you know, that centuries of oppression have um, nurtured and given rise to. What is Fanon saying? I mean, he's, you know, he's not um, embracing that kind of violence. Um, but at the same time, he wants to understand it. Why, why is this taking place? I, I think it's, um, there is an ambivalence. I don't think there's an easy answer. You know, what's more, Fanon included as the last chapter of The Wretched of the Earth, the second long, it's the, the second longest chapter um, in the book, Colonial War and Mental Disorders, which um, is a series of case studies um, about the psychoaffective disorders caused by colonial warfare. And in that chapter, he writes very vividly about not just the uh, scars left by the violence of the colonizer, he does that of course too, but also about the scars left on people who have carried out acts of anti-colonial violence, whether they are fighters who are plagued by nightmares 
about the people they've killed or children who, you know, adolescents who murdered a friend of theirs simply because he was a European and they wanted to take revenge for the killing of their own people. This is a, this is a pretty profound chapter and actually quite a, um, an innovative chapter because in fact, at that time, very little work had been done about, about war trauma caused by the Algerian war. The French were, e were keen to deny it. And I believe that um, the trauma, the traumatic um, injuries of the Algerian war were only officially acknowledged by France in the eighties or nineties. So Fanon was also, you know, was also quite prescient. And then there's another thing that's worth mentioning with respect to Fanon's advocacy of violence, which is that Fanon in The Wretched of the Earth writes about the initial stages of an anti-colonial struggle when um, an oppressed people are in a sense announcing their existence on the stage of history as fighters rather than as victims. And he says that in that initial stage, the colonizer, tout court, any colonizer is seen as an enemy. And the struggle is constructed as a very Manichaean battle between all members of the colonizing community and all members of the colonized community. But then he goes on to say that at a certain point and under intelligent leadership, the colonized will discover that some whites are blacker than, than black people and that some blacks are whiter than whites, that different kinds of alliances and solidarities have to be imagined and that the struggle has to transcend the Manichaeanism that it lifted from the colonial grid. So I think points like this are also an indication that while Fanon is an advocate of violence, he doesn't believe that violence is simply a matter of taking out a gun and shooting any colonizer you can find. I mean, this is not, Fanon is, is too sophisticated and too careful a thinker to advocate that. And I do think it's interesting that Fanon maintained an enigmatic silence about Sartre's preface. You know, Sartre had written that, you know, when a colonized, colonized person kills a colonizer, he's killing two birds with one stone. He's killing the colonizer and he's killing the colonized inside of him. And there are passages in it that are much more, far more grotesque than that. Fanon never said what he thought of that. I think he was honored and probably flattered to have the endorsement of a thinker like Sartre, whom he admired, but it wasn't his language. And in Fanon's Wretched of the Earth, it's not always easy to tell the difference between diagnosis and prescription. So yes, supporter of armed struggle, but bloodthirsty, no. And ambivalent about the consequences. Mm. I mean, this may be the final thing I ask you, but as you're writing this book, you know, we have the summer of 2020, where we see the largest kind of political mobilization in American history around the issue of police violence and, and black liberation. As this book is kind of going to print, you know, being printed out, we have um, October 7th and the intensification of Israel's occupation turning to genocide in Palestine. Understandably, Fanon is an increasingly relevant figure. His, his relevance and his influence is not diminishing. And I just wondered how you kind of feel about that, having worked on the book and it kind of coming out. I mean, how, how do you kind of hope your book helps to orientate people in their experience of Fanon? And I say this because, as you rightly pointed out earlier, there's, there's many Fanons 
and you can read him in a number of different ways and and you know people are and continue to do did you feel as though it was your job to kind of marshal the many different phenons did you want to kind of put forward your own or you know how, how do you kind of see your responsibility as a biographer in this uh, increasingly kind of phenonian period that we live in sure well first of all I'll say that um you know when i wrote this by when i wrote this book i imagined that it would be read through the prism of black lives matter and i write a bit about um black lives matter in the epilogue and conclude on some points about um, Fanon's relationship to uh, matters of Black consciousness and identity and so forth that have been very much under discussion in the Black Lives Matter period. But of course, now that the book is coming out, Black Lives Matter, while, while the concerns you know, of the Black Lives Matter movement have hardly abated, I mean, we're, we're still living and grappling with problems of racism, discrimination, police violence, and so forth, in the public conversation, this for the moment at least, has been eclipsed by, by October 7, by Gaza, by this very brutal campaign, which certainly is driven by a rhetoric that is genocidal and that has cost so many Palestinian lives. I'm relieved, I have to admit, that I actually wrote a lot about Palestine in the epilogue. So I don't think that the book is dated. It's, I write extensively about the impact of Fanon's work um, in Palestine. There's obviously more to be said, but it's in the epilogue. And it's also something that informs the way I write about Fanon in his life as well, because you know, I was drawn to Algeria in my late 20s, early 30s, even before, really, in part as a way of thinking about some of the issues at stake in the Israel-Palestine struggle in a different context. So those two issues have always been very much linked to my mind. I felt that my responsibility, you know, as a writer, as a biographer, was to present as sensitive, as supple, as psychologically nuanced a portrait of Fanon, who is a figure I, you know, greatly admire as I possibly could to present, you know, a portrait that is admiring, but also unflinching, that gives readers a sense of this extraordinary and very dramatic life. You know, Fanon talks about the leap of invention, you know, being the essence of humanity. I mean, I'm not sure has anyone, you know, few people have leaped in the way that Fanon did. And I wanted to convey that. But I also wanted to convey the political and psychological costs of someone who decides to go from being a writer, witness, psychiatrist, and if you will, rebel, to being a member of an organization that, while it's committed to political liberation, to be sure, is also authoritarian. Also carries the weight of ideologies and traditions that are quite conservative and in some ways antithetical to Fanon's understanding of freedom and disalienation. So, you know, there are inner conflicts that I think you can discern in statements that Fanon made in the warning 
that that uh, that uh, uh, can be found in the wretched of the earth about the future, you know, the post-independent states, the avaricious elites, the national bourgeoisie. So I wanted to kind of you know relate this heroic, but also in some ways tragic life that ends far too soon, and to do so in a way that would grip readers who might not be aware of Fanon or might not really know that they would have any interest in him to begin with. Because in a sense, I wanted to liberate Fanon from the cult around him and to see him once again as nothing but a man, which is what he talks about in Black Skin, White Masks. Thank you for listening to Red Medicine and thank you to Adam for such a great conversation. Once again, please do consider supporting Red Medicine by sharing this episode, rating it five stars on Apple or Spotify, or signing up for a donation using a link in the show notes. Thanks again.